Okay, so Jose, uh, the last time that we spoke, we were talking about, you gave us a, basically a background of, of, you know, kind of what was setting the, setting the stage for the hunger strikes to begin. So here we are now, and the hunger strikes are, are, are starting, or they're, they're, they're in their beginning stages. So talk to us, you were there, talk to us about what was happening in real time. Yeah, um, and thank you um, for continuing this conversation. And, you know, I remember um, once the hunger strikes uh, began, I remember um, first that the, the guards became very, um, they became um, very angry and they became very hostile toward everybody. Um, and I think, uh, you know, and they particularly, <clears throat> you know, I just happened to have a couple of neighbors um, in the pod with me that were next door, um, next door to myself. There were two white prisoners. And um, to be specific, um, you know, these were two uh, neo-Nazi, uh, you know, skinheads. And <clears throat> but they were housed there in the shoe as well. And I remember the guards um, giving them a little bit um, extra attention as well um, as far as the hostility because I think the guards seen them kind of like as um, going, you know, going against them, of course. But um, I think the guards in, in many ways see uh, the state as, you know, um, white supremacy itself so that was very interesting for me to see guards kind of like stopping by their door and and you know I even remember hearing the guards telling them um, you know what the hell are you guys doing this for you know and I was like wow like what the like what does that mean like oh my god right. you know this is crazy so you know they, they you know but they they became hostile toward everybody and, um, and and they would uh, constantly come in and um, you know um, say things you know um, they would say things like you know um, you, you know they're not going to change nothing um, I remember guards saying uh, you know nobody cares what you guys are doing like nobody cares like why are you guys doing this um, you know, they um, told, you know, other people, um, you know, tell your family to um, pick out your coffin, you know, because, and they would say these things very seriously. So um, this was like a psychological um, a, a means to inflict uh, psychological blows to people. Uh, because once you go on hunger strike, um, you know, your, your your body, your mind enters a different, um, you know, anybody who's fasted knows they fast for one day and then they feel very like, you know, a lot of people feel spiritual or they feel, you know, in, you know, certain ways. So once you start fasting for, um, you know, the first few days, you start to really, um, you know, you start to think about death. You know, you, you think about death, you think about life, and you think about death, like your mind, um, 
begins to um, think very deeply about every aspect of your life. So, and, and, and for somebody, um, and the state knows this, so, um, you know, I'm sure they had meetings leading up to the hunger strike um, uh, and, and with doctors, and I'm sure that they, uh, you know, told them things that, that they should do or say or to discourage us and stuff like that. So that's one of the things they would say is nobody cares, like nobody, absolutely, you guys are doing this for nothing. Um, yeah. Can I ask too, so as they're doing that, are they also, what's happening with the family members and the and the, the people that are supporting you on, you know, the other folks, the advocates on the outside, What what's happening with them? Because as they're saying nobody cares, or else, are they also then, um, you don't have any access to your people on the outside, right? So, yeah, so how does that play kind of on both sides of the Well, I, I know occasion? that um, the, our, um, our supporters were um, actually doing a lot of things, uh, and... Um, and then at one point, I remember um, our supporters coming to the prison and, and being out there in front of the gates and stuff, um, protesting um, what was occurring inside. But we didn't know that at first. We, we didn't know it. And then um, slowly, we began to find out through um, people, um, visitors coming visitors coming in would tell people like hey you know there's a bunch of people outside uh and and what the prison started doing is censoring um publications that talked about the hunger strike um because they didn't want to they wanted to cut us off of all information um and, and you know to do with it they didn't want us to see the support that we had they didn't want us to uh read about what people were doing um, around the U.S. Um, in, in, in order to support us. So they would ban um, publications. And the way they did it is they'd give you a, um, a little receipt saying that your publication was denied. And the reason they would say it is promoting a disruption to the safety and security of the institution. And they would say that the disruption is um, you know promoting the hunger strike, and so they, they for that reason we wouldn't get a lot of publications, um, and then sometimes one will come through and it'll have a, a article and we'll get to learn more. Um, another thing that um, helped us to understand what was happening outside um, was the radio um, at Humboldt State, and in, in you know and um, with Sister Souls program she had a radio program called sister soul and um and so we would you know she during the hunger strike she would have people on her show she would be talking about what's going on and so this was informing us of what was taking place outside of the prison um and 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 so that was very very um very good because uh, you know many cases we only had the radio and so everybody would wait on Sunday and then listen to what is going on has anything else developed and, and she would have people under talking about the governor um, governor Brown who would um, you know say he's not gonna you know he's not budging or you know um, different things that were on the show 
yeah, so that's how we um, that's how we were kept up on what was going on. But I'll just say real quick that the um, things that were going on is people were coming to protest. Um, I remember um, even some Aztec dancers came to the prison, to, and, and we heard them. We heard their drums and stuff. Um, you know, people were going on hunger strike with us out out there outside of prison. Um, and there was just so many groups that were created uh, and uh, coalitions of people and family members that helped to uh, raise awareness um, and to, um, you know, apply pressure on the state uh, in order to uh, negotiate with us. So can we um, drill down a little bit, kind of unpack the, the five core demands and maybe how that was uh, talk about that but I'm still also really interested in, in drilling down a little bit more like thinking about your neighbors I mean you had mm. neo-nazi neighbors you mm. know and um, you you're a member of Aslan right mm. and so you know where is that what was happening there mm. like when you think about the you being next cell, you know, cell next door to each other. Can you drill down a little bit about what was going on there? And yeah, well, I mean, first I, I understood that <clears throat> why you know I understood that um, you know because everywhere I would go, you know, I was um, I was very active in the in the prison as far as um, contributing to um, different organizations outside of prison through writing and um, artwork and stuff like this. So, um, you know, the, the prison guards, no matter what prison I went to, um, you know, they would, um, they, you know, of course they, they didn't like me um, um, for nothing. You know, they don't like prisoners in general, but they always, um, I guess, um, you know, showed me a little, <clears throat> excuse me, a little uh, special attention in, in a very bad way, you know, so. <clears throat> right, let's be clear, the special attention special is, attention is more retaliation. Yes. Abusement, um, <clears throat> repression, basically. So um, one of the things that they would do is they would, um, you know, um, I was uh, born and raised uh, in Northern California. And so one of the things that they did, um, because I had, you know, my friends, many of my friends from Northern California, one of the things they did was to house me in cell blocks, not just the pod. The pod is, you know, of course the pod too, but, um, you know, and, and I would be in a pod with no friends of mine um, from the areas in which I grew up in, and they would just house me, you know, um, there. Um, you know, even when I was in Tehachapi Shoe, what they did was they actually housed me in a whole cell block of 200 people. So every block has uh, three pods and every pod has probably um, 60 or 70 people in it. And, um, and, and, and that comprises a cell block. So they actually housed me in a cell block with nobody from my area, um, nobody.
anybody from Northern California at all. And they had me there for um, over a year. So um, they didn't do that to anybody else in the prison. And I've never heard of them doing it to anybody since or before. So this is what I mean by special treatment. Um, you and this know, is all because of your writings and the absolutely. work that you were doing when you were in general population. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. In general and in the whole. Um, so they just didn't want me around anybody um, that I knew uh, because they felt, you know, I may influence them to uh, educate them um, in, in, in order to, um, to resist as well. So this is, um, this is what I mean by special treatment. Just, and then every time there's, um, either, uh, neo-Nazis or, uh, mentally ill prisoners, they would move one of my neighbors and house these people right next to me. So, um, you know, when you think about, you know, neo-Nazi um, prisoners, um, the thing about it, even though we're in the hole, it's very common practice for the guards to um, uh, quote-unquote accidentally open the doors of different cells, and they do this in order to uh, promote the gladiator fights amongst prisoners. So, to have me already and housed in this situation where I know nobody, uh, I'm around nobody, none of my friends, uh, and then to house me next to like neo-Nazis and stuff, and knowing that every single day there's a possibility that they are gonna open these doors, um, and you know, um, and and so to to be housed in that kind of situation where you, you know, you 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 are amongst nobody that you know, none of your friends, and then to top that. Um, psychological blow on top of that to top it um, with now placing neo-Nazis right next to you um, and we know why they do that you know um, the prison has a long history of uh, assassinating people through utilizing the neo-Nazi prisoners the you know Aryan prisoner white supremacist prisoners and we've seen that with uh, Hugo Pinnell and so, but he wasn't the only one. They've been doing that for decades. So, and I understand the history of prisons. I understand the history of the guards, their role in the um, in state repression. So, uh, every time that I would encounter um, this kind of treatment, I knew exactly what they were doing. And so, um, I, that just meant that I had to be um, extra cautious and extra. Um, I just had to be extra vigilant and prepared um, at all times because I knew their intent. So this is the type of, um, yeah. But the, so the intent though, you're, you're, when you say intent, do you mean the intent of the state and the guards and what it is that they're doing, right? Because in the end, you all were hunger striking together. Absolutely. And, and that's what was, that's what, uh, you know, the thing about the hunger strike that um, kind of transformed um, relations between all prisoners is that, you know, when I was saying that I was housed like that um, in Tehachapishu, um, that was years before the hunger strike. So fast forward to the hunger strike where uh, once again, you know, they you know, put some neo-Nazi prisoners right next to me. In this case, it was two prisoners. Um, they were roommates.
So, um, you know, at, at that point, before before the hunger strike, it was, um, you know, there was um, a lot of conflict between all prison groups. Um, and then once the hunger strike came, um, you know, we um, began to... Um, to understand that uh, we were all struggling against the state and that um, in order to get out of the shoe, um, th that's kind of like, I don't want to say the easy part because it's not easy, but that's the least of our obstacles because getting out of the shoe is one hurdle, but a bigger hurdle is what occurs after we're out of the shoe because um, prior to the hunger strike, you know, uh, prisoners were, you know, in, in, in deep conflict and, um, you know, many people have lost their lives um, because of these conflicts that um, have been festering for decades in the California prison system and beyond. So um, the bigger hurdle was once we are released, then what? Because um, it's one thing getting released, but once you get released, from the shoe into general population, you no longer have chains on you and you're not cuffed up being escorted everywhere. Now you're just walking around the yard and you're able to do anything you want. And um, if you have bad intentions, you can do bad intentions all you want um, without being chained up or anything. So this changed the, you know, it changed the whole, um, the, the whole, I don't want to say game, but change the ball game as far as um, now what? Now there has to be, um, you, you know, there has to be something in place. Otherwise, you know, things are going to get very, very ugly out there. And then everybody's going to be put back in the shoe. So that's when, um, you know, the, um, the issue of um, end hostilities came out. And that was, uh, I think, in my opinion, it was, um, you know, it, it, it's a symbol that and hostilities is a symbol of um, class consciousness um, amongst prisoners, you know, because these are um, these are prisoners, uh, you know, lumping prisoners, the lumping population, you know, which prisoners fall into those who do not um, create. Any kind of profit or anything to the state don't work, um, you know. And this population, the lumpen population, um, most of the time doesn't express class consciousness. And this is why, um, you know, going back in history, a lot of revolutionary leaders felt that um, the population was. Um, some leaders felt the population was. Uh, you know, like um, as worthless as a sack of potatoes. Um, you know, very very. A population that just couldn't do nothing, counter-revolutionary. But um, if we look to groups like, um, uh, I'd say, the Black Panther Party, you know, um, in U.S. Uh, borders, the Black Panther Party remains probably um, the highest stage of development of a revolutionary organization within these false U.S. borders. So, if they developed um, more than any other revolutionary group or political party has developed 
up to this date, even up to today, if they develop, then you have to look at, well, who were they? Like, you know, how did they develop? What were they, what was their population that they consisted of? What, what made up their membership? And the Black Panther Party, what, what was different from other groups and other organizations and other political parties, even today, is the Black Panther Party focused on recruiting amongst the lumpen populate the black lumpen population which is you know the unemployed the prisoners the so-called criminals the you know people um, chronically unemployed people just living um, on on the underground economy and so this population basically street people people from the street from the hood uh, from the barrios and these this population of people um, in the streets in the hood is what the Black Panther Party focused on in their recruitment. And um, so I don't think it's a coincidence that the Black Panther Party developed the way it did um, um, and that they just so happen to have a majority of lumpen, black lumpen population, population amongst their membership. I think that the lumpen um, in that case proved the the black lumpen in that place, uh, in that case, proved that um, once this group of people who have chronically lived, you know, hand to mouth, really just um, surviving by any means possible, uh, struggling against enormous odds, um, once this group of people is politically educated, that this group of people are gonna be the ones that um, push the movement um, as far as it can possibly go um, because they um, have a long history of struggling um, by any means necessary, um, but they've never had the political education. So once you connect them to political education, this is a very, very uh, powerful, group of people and so I think that in the US prison well in California prison system the prison population is very powerful you know they are very highly organized um, there's just so much stuff that's going on being constantly developed constantly um, uh, honed and constantly sharpened uh, amongst these organizations, these lumpen organizations. So I think that should you inject these um, populations with um, education or class consciousness, this is a very powerful um, group of people. And, 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 and the hunger strikes prove that that's exactly what happened, um, that um, once these organizations um, develop a class consciousness and it does it it, it it does not have to be the entire membership of every lump in organization in the prisons but all it needs is um, a handful of the leaderships amongst these organizations once they um, understand a class consciousness that you know yeah we have differences yes we might have some conflict whatever and you know we all have different goals different objectives, but um, we do, um, we are up against a common enemy, 
that is greater than our conflicts amongst each other. Now, that's just the foundation. As long as Lumpen organization or any organizations understand that, they will be able to move in a forward motion together in a united front. Um, even though they have individual different goals, distinct goals and objectives, they will be able to resist against the common enemy. And in this case, that is the state and not the state of California, but, you know, the entire um, state apparatus that the U.S., um, you know, um, that the U.S. Is, is established with. But so I think that once um, the class consciousness set in, um, that was reflected in the end to hostilities. Uh, the end to hostilities was a basic um, five demands of, you know, just basic, um, you know, human rights and, 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 you know, things that we um, as prisoners um, should have had a long time ago, you know. Um, yeah, just your basic. Absolutely. Just basic living. So how, uh, I'm, do you mind if I read the agreement to end hostilities? Absolutely Let's not. go ahead and read that. Um, so this was uh, uh, put out in August, on August 12th of 2012. So it really gets to what you were talking about, how when you, there was the 2011 hunger strikes, then you had to come up with a strategy about what was going to happen, like how are we going to keep this going because the, the five core demands were not met, and then how are we gonna, how are we going to move forward when we actually are out of the shoe, mm -hmm. right? I mean, this is this is some very serious strategical thinking you all are are creating here. So, to whom it may concern, and all California prisoners, greetings from the entire PBSP shoe short corridor hunger strike representatives. We are hereby presenting this mutual agreement on behalf of all racial groups here in PBSP SHU Corridor, wherein we have arrived at a mutual agreement concerning the following points. One, if we really want to bring about substantive meaningful changes to the CDCR system in a manner beneficial to all solid individuals who have never been broken by CDCR's torture tactics intended to coerce one to become a state informant via debriefing, that now is the time for us to collectively seize this moment in time and put an end to more than 20 to 30 years of hostilities between our racial groups. Two, therefore, beginning on October 10th, 2012, all hostilities between our racial groups in SHU, ADSEG, general population, and county jails will officially cease. This means that from this date on, all racial groups' hostilities need to be at an end. And if personal issues arise between individuals, People need to do all they can to exhaust all diplomatic means to settle such disputes. Do not allow personal individual issues to escalate into racial group issues. Three, we also want to warn those in general population that IGI will continue to plant undercover sensitive needs yards, do briefer, quote, inmates, amongst the solid GP prisoners with orders from IGI to be informers. And that's investigative gang investigative gang, um, institutional gang investigators. Got it. To be informers, snitches, rats, and obstructionists in order to attempt to disrupt and undermine our collective group's mutual understanding on issues intended for our mutual causes, like, i.e., forcing CDCR to open up all GP mainlines and return to a rehabilitative-type system of meaningful programs and privileges, including life or conjugal visits, etc., via 
peaceful protest activity, non-cooperation, especially hunger strike, no labor, etc., etc. People need to be aware and vigilant to those tactics and refuse to allow such IGI inmate snitches to create chaos and reignite hostilities amongst our racial groups. We can no longer play into IGI, ISU, OCS, and SSU's old manipulative divide and conquer tactics, three exclamation points. In conclusion, we must all hold strong to our mutual agreement from this point on and focus our time, attention, and energy on mutual causes beneficial to all of us i.e. prisoners, and our best interests. We can no longer allow CDCR to use us against each other for their benefit because the reality is that collectively we are an empowered, mighty force that can positively change this entire corrupt system into a system that actually benefits prisoners and thereby the public as a whole. And we simply cannot allow CDCR slash CCPOA, Prison Guards Union, IGI, ISU, OCS, and SSU to continue to get away with their constant form of progressive oppression and warehousing of tens of thousands of prisoners, including the 14,000 plus prisoners held in solitary confinement torture chambers, the SHU ADSEC units, for decades. We send our love and respects to all those of like mind and heart, Onward in Struggle and Solidarity, presented by the PBSP Shoe Short Corridor Collective, Todd Ashker, Arturo Castellanos, Setawan Antapu Jama'a, Antonio Guillen, and the representative body, Danny Troxel, George Franco, Ronnie Yandel, Paul Red, James Baridi Williamson, Alfred Sandoval, Louis Powell, Alex Yurgoyen, Gabriel Huerta, Frank Clement, Raymond Chavo Perez, James Mario Perez. Mm. So, mm. right? I mean, it's just powerful just listening to it again. Yeah. So from that, I would love for you to, again, I just, I think the, the power of being able to overcome these, the intense racial divide and geographical divide that you all were, were experiencing within your own groups to be able to overcome that, to be sitting right next to, to be selled right next to neo-Nazis who, you know, historically, you know how you've been at odds, how you overcome this to create a, a, a document like this that still holds to this day. I think that, I mean, the only way to, to be able to do that is people have to have... Um, um, uh, you know, an enemy that is greater than the very conflict that, you know, and so it, it just, it came to the point where the repression that everybody faced of being, you know, held in these torture, um, torture cells for decades, I think that outweighed any kind of conflict that, um, was around before the hunger strike. Um, yeah, there was conflict, but you know when um, your very future um, as a people, as an imprisoned people, um, is um, threatened um, to the point of, 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 of demise, of you know of, of, of insanity or you know or assassination. And once once that is understood, I think any other conflict amongst each other 
um, you know, it, it, it seems very small compared to, you know, um, what has historically taken place in these um, so-called control units to really torture units. So I think that's what gave birth to the end of hostilities. It was this extreme forms of repression that every prisoner was facing some more than others. I would just add that at the time of the hunger strike, um, you know, the shoe was probably 80. I think the lawyer, um, one of the lawyers in the lawsuit quoted it as 84 or 85% Chicano prisoners. Um, so I think, you know, um, everybody was um, targeted, some a little more than others, but um, despite um, how many or, you know, how less, the bottom line is that every group and every organization in the prison system was affected by um, by the torture centers because if they're capturing all of certain people and putting them in these torture centers, um, they're allowing others to be out there in the general population and they're allowing others to be out there for a reason because maybe um, many of the others uh, other people are not rocking the boat. Maybe they are not promoting revolutionary theory or resistance. Maybe they are not organizing um, con you know, against the state. Maybe, you know, for certain reasons, you know, there's a, you know, a lot of informants and they are allowed to be out there because they actually help the guards. And, and, and when somebody comes in who is organizing and he, who is educating other prisoners and who is struggling and creating forms of resistance like, um, you know, um, group lawsuits against the guards or, you know, hunger strikes and doing all these things, somebody comes in like that, the informants will let the guards know, hey, this guy's a troublemaker. He's doing this, he's doing that, he's doing that. And then that person will get snatched up and they get rid of them. So, you know, when, when they're targeting, you know, certain individuals for shoe torture, um, it's going to have an effect on the general population as well. And um, and so at some point, you know, I think everybody just came to understand that. I think that the many years of outside organizations um, working with prisoners, um, helping to educate prisoners, um, you know, um, sending in revolutionary literature, books, um, and other things. I think all of that helped to create, you know, it, 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 those were tools that people inside of prison or inside the shoe were able to, there were tools um, able to work with. You know, it's like cultivating a garden. Um, if you you know you, you don't have no soil or no tools and no seeds, you, you can't cultivate a garden. You can't do nothing with it. Even if you're an expert uh, horticulturist, it, it it doesn't matter. You could be um, you know you could have operated a you know thousand acre farm, but if you don't have seeds and dirt and tools, you you can't do nothing with that knowledge of what you have. But 
if and that's the case with the shu is you know those excellent organizers people who've been organizing for decades who were there that's why they're there because they were organizing in other prisons or outside of prison and so they had this knowledge and this this way of organizing but there was just no you know and, and so the other outside organizations who constantly sent books and literature and different materials into the shu um how those who were in there to create these environments where people were learning people were studying people were um developing and um and you know it took a lot of years and 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 at some point even you know even white prisoners were participating because um you know and and I owe this to you know the um you know uh, the exposure to revolutionary education because um there's no way that um these prisoners would have got involved if somebody somewhere within their organization did not um develop um uh, some form of progressive thought you know um and and you know just like out here nobody has to agree on everything and we won't but um there has to be some form of progressive thought in some element in order for entire organizations to come together in a united front in order to challenge the state so i believe that happened and i believe it's continuing to happen and i believe that um the end of hostilities is just that's just the first step in a longer process of development and it, it may take longer it may take years it may take decades but i believe that that process has started and um and once it has fully developed i think that um that's when we're going to probably end up seeing um the end to mass imprisonment what people call mass incarceration because the state is going to see this development and um you know these prisoners being revolutionized and then they're going to you know they're going to realize that you know their weapons are used against them the prisons were weapons they are weapons and so that's when they're going to make changes um only when um you know prisoners develop into the next stage of uh collaboration and struggle and then we're going to see the the whole US prison system completely changed laws changed um and because they're going to see that um these prisons really are um being transformed into uh, revolutionary uh liberation schools so oh my goodness oh yes when that day comes so i was wondering if i could make this a little bit more personal because i'm i'm still so interested in this this relationship there, was there some kind of progression of an understanding between you and these some these these other two um prisoners that were cell next to you like Absolutely. so i would i would love for you to drill down in that because i think again 
you guys were kind of forced into that, but i also want to see like what does that mean for us out here in terms of what we need to be doing you know and um how we can find that common purpose right like when you were talking about in terms of we may not agree on everything but can we agree on can we come together on our common purpose and in mm. this case sounds like you know your liberation your freedom the understanding who your common oppressor is but but there's a progress there's there's a process rather would you mind sharing some of that yeah well like with the neighbors that i had these white supremacists you know they were um neo-nazis and you know the thing about the shoe is that you know we're all suffering a certain layer of repression so we understand that and um despite our conflicts or what's going on um you know there there is a certain level of um you know mutual respect for one another um no matter what beliefs one has because um the thing is we all know that at any point at any time of any day that every last one of us that is there can leave immediately um, if that person were to um, let the guard know they want to become an informant at any time of any day, you know, 10 in the morning, one in the morning, you know, at any time somebody can notify the guard and say they want to be an informant, get me out of here, they will believe immediately. So the common respect that everybody had in the shoe was that knowing that every last one of us can do that at any time. And yet we were still there. So we were still there, so we were in resistance. Even though we had conflict amongst each other, it's kind of like almost um you know if if you're you know um in um a soldier in a battle you know you could be um you know anywhere in the world and even though you know that your conflict with each other means that you know somebody's going to die even though you know that um many times um you know these opposing forces will still have a, a respect for one of not one another because each knows that the other is willing to die for what they believe in and that's a very that takes you know not everybody um can say that they will die for what they believe in that takes you know a a, a very um you know a very um, another level it takes another level of dedication uh, and selflessness um in order to uh, give your life for your beliefs that is you know and anybody who does that um you cannot help but to respect that person whether you agree with the person's beliefs or not that's that that has nothing to do with it you got to respect that this person um is willing to go all the way mm-hmm. and so because of that um there is a high level of respect for everybody in there amongst each other um and even though my neighbors were neo nazis and i knew that should the door open and they happened to be cellmates so there's actually two of them so it's not just dealing with one person but 
now you got two people and you know um and so i even though everybody knew that uh, these doors open we know what's going to happen i mean we know more or less what's going to go down um that even though we knew that you know um there was a high level of respect um, amongst everybody in there because everybody was struggling against the same state repression and everybody knew that the guards frequently crack open doors uh and everybody knew what would occur if they did do that and we all knew that everybody that was there was had just come to accept all of that like I'm here, I'm not going to go nowhere, I'm not going to be an informant. And so even though these guys were neo-Nazis, they were there as well, struggling against the state. So because of that, um, there was a high level of respect for everybody in there. Um, and, you know, so things like publications that came in, you know, everybody um, shared with everybody. So... You know, there's six cells, there's eight cells. So if, um, you know, one cell gets um, this magazine or that newspaper, after they check it out and read it and, and all of that, they will pass it to the next cell. And then the next cell, and then it'll go throughout the whole pod. And I, so I did the same, you know, even though these were neo-nazis and, and most people will get subscribed to you know um sports magazines or you know um just swimsuit magazines and all this type of stuff you know i did subscribe to you know over a dozen revolutionary publications and so i would get revolutionary newsletters newspapers magazines um theoretical journals um, I would get all of this stuff and, um, and I would send it, read it and send it down the line and other prisoners would read it and they would send it throughout the pod and it would go to my neighbors, the neo-Nazis as well. And even though they may have disagreed with, um, the content, um, there's a high level of respect. So nobody said nothing bad about it. If they didn't want to read something, they could just pass it down to the next cell. But everybody um, at least viewed the material. And so um, this was very, um, I think it, it provided an educational experience for them that they had never and may, may never in the future um, end up receiving again. So, um, and, and maybe um, some of what they've read because I was there for a decade. So these people that were there with me for, were there with me for years. So all of these people were being exposed to this um, revolutionary material for years. And, um, and so I know that they're always, whether they act on it or not, they are always gonna be somewhat aware um, of, um, you know, um, revolutionary education and um and you know whether they apply it or not but i think that once we had this hunger strike you know these um neo-nazi neighbors that i had you know they were on board as well and um and so that was 
something that you know that I witnessed um, and that you know did leave an impression that you know um, yeah they they do you know they do have a certain level of privilege even as prisoners um, but at the same time they were being tortured uh, right next to me in this solitary com- well they actually had they actually had roommates but you know the the point is they're away from their families as well and um, suffering um, uh, from not being able to contact their family no phone calls and everything else and being held in Pelican Bay um, so far away from home and you know so and you know being the only uh, white prisoners, you know, in the pod as well, you know, they, they had to learn, um, just like we had to learn to interact with them, they had to learn um, how to interact with non-white people. So it, it was it was a learning experience for everybody. Um, and I think the hunger strike kind of forced us into that um, because um, if it wasn't for the hunger strike, I, I, you know, I don't think there would be much conversation amongst um, many of the prisoners. So that um, definitely um, helped in um, in allowing um, some form of collaboration with, um, uh, you know, a certain population that we otherwise would not have done. And I think it's a good ex- um, it's a good example as well of. You know, even when you study societies and forms of revolution and resistance, that at some point, even in any country, that whenever there um, becomes an uprising, major uprising, um, it's going to have to be uh, a united front of not just different nationalities, but it's going to have to also be, uh, in my opinion, a united front amongst different classes because... um, you know, that's a good example of the shoe. The, the shoe was a very good example where you had some people who were, even though they were there, they were more privileged than others. And yet um, the only way we can be um, totally successful is if we create this united front of um, different nationalities and different forms of privilege populations. And um, so that's an example, I think, um, in, in the future out here as well. Oh, my God, that's fantastic. I'm so we have to leave it there, unfortunately. But I hope that we are going to be able to do this again because we can definitely there's so much more to talk about. I feel like we could really drill down into some greater aspects of this. Thank you so much, um, Jose, for coming in um, and sitting with me today. Um, and talking about this, and I hope that um, we can get maybe one more in in this series because Absolutely. I think we could definitely use it. Well, thank you, Nube. Right. Thank you very much yes. for having me here and for um, you know just hearing um, this small part of history. Fantastic. Thank you, folks.